in proof that the Bible is the Word of God. It's not a subject that gets spoken about much today. In fact, when religion does get spoken about, it's rare to get past the question of God's existence, let alone whether the Bible is actually the Word of God. Australia is very much moving towards an atheist society where over 30% of people identify themselves as having no religion. It's up over 7% from the 2011 census. The 30.1% there of no religion is actually higher when we combine some of the 1.7% from other religions as people actively identify themselves as atheist or agnostic, as they're very much um, actively opposed to the things of God. So it's true and sad to say that we are living in a very ungodly world. That goes hand in hand with the teachings of, of Darwinism over the last 150 years and through our school systems as, as a, our kids are taught that we, we owe the Earth's creation or the Earth's existence through the process of evolution. And scientists have gone out of their way to explain God out of the process of creation. If we were to ask the average school pupil today, they would tell you that it is fact that, in, that we have our, owe our existence to Darwin's evolution. The Bible makes a, a claim in Romans chapter 1, and he says to all those people who don't believe that God is the creator, he says, if you want to understand that there is a God, all we have to do is to look at the creative works, to look in detail at his creation, the balance of his creation, the design that's gone into the creative week, and from that we should be able to conclude that there is a creator. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 and verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, because they are understood through what, he has, been, through what has been made. And he concludes, the people who go and examine nature are without excuse about the conclusions that they come to about the existence of God. We only need to look at nature to conclude the immense power that it took for this world to come into, into, into existence and that that creative work must have involved something that was divine. It's not without irony that scientists can examine the natural things of this world and conclude that God does not exist. The Bible tells us, you examine nature and you can only conclude that there is a God. The Bible makes another claim about creation. It says that in the future, it's going to be recognised universally that God is the creator. It's going to come to pass, and it might seem far-fetched from where we sit and view this world, but the time is coming when all people will know and worship God and the fact that he is the creator will be a universally accepted fact. That's the words of Isaiah 40 and verse 28. Have you not heard? The Lord is an eternal God, the creator of the whole earth. He does not get tired or weary and there's no limit to his wisdom. Now that's speaking about a time not too distant from here after the Lord Jesus Christ has returned to this earth and established a kingdom based on the principles of God. On that occasion, all people will know that he is the creator. 
and the fact that we might seem that that is a bit of a stretch from where we sit is a testament to the massive changes that this earth has to undergo when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. That brings us to our first argument tonight, that if we look at creation, we can only conclude that God exists and that if God exists, the Bible must be the word of God. And we're going to see that as we go through tonight, hopefully, that this subject is very much an all or nothing subject. We cannot have a God without his Bible and we cannot have a Bible without the word of God. They coexist and they are inseparable. And if we have to prove that the Bible is the word of God, what we're actually trying to do is prove that God exists. They're inseparable. If God exists, the Bible is the word of God. We can be sure about that because the Bible makes a lot of claims by God about himself. One of those is that he cannot lie. We're told in Numbers that God is not a man that he can lie. But there are other things about the Bible that God claims, about how it came into existence. As we go through the Bible, you can note in many, many places, whenever God's prophets and servants speak, they always use the words on a large number of occasions, thus saith the Lord, so it is written, thus saith God. Here's some examples. The word of the Lord said unto Moses, write these words. They're, they're the words of God that Moses wrote. The prophets of Israel all proclaim, Thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. And we have the New Testament that explains to us that what we have on our laps tonight is actually the word of God. It is the inspired word of God. And that means that while it was written down by men, they were inspired to write it under the power of God. And that means that what we have in our laps tonight is literally the very words or the thoughts of God himself written to us via the mechanism of men as they wrote on their page. We have quotes like Second Peter 1 verse 21. No prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by his Holy Spirit spoken from God. So what God said, they wrote down. It wasn't their thoughts. The Bible is God's thoughts. The Apostle Paul wrote that God breathed. In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration. It is breathed out by God, and men wrote it down. And that's why we can claim that the Bible is the most unique book on the, on the face of the earth. A collection of over 66 books, written by over 40 authors, or penned by 40 different people, written over a time period of 1,500 years, and yet its message is consistent and accurate because the authorship is God. And so to summarise all that, the Bible and God's existence is the same subject. If we believe that God exists, the Bible is the infallible word of God. Our intention tonight, hopefully, ladies and gentlemen, is to show you a few aspects of the Bible to help hopefully convince you that the Bible is not as archaic as you might believe. To show you that on many occasions, and we'll just touch on a few tonight, that what God wrote in his Bible was thousands of years ahead of the sciences as man discovered them. That the Bible contains prophecies that can only come from a divine source. 
And we'll close by showing how those things relate to us. I want to say a brief word about archaeology. When we're talking about proving the Bible true, it's quite often that people will talk about archaeology in, in regard to the Bible and how it supports the Bible. Personally, I don't like archaeology in that context. And the reason I don't like archaeology is that always archaeology, when an archaeologist has a dig, there's always a personal interpretation placed on that dig with regards to how it supports or does not support the Bible. And virtually without fail, you can find an equally uh, qualified scholar who will interpret that dig with the exact opposite meaning as regards to the dig and how it pertains to the Bible. And so it's not, it's not fit for our purpose. Um, there are better ways of proving that the Bible is true. Having said that, I do want to refer you to a quote by this man here. His name is Nelson Gluick. He is an American archaeologist. In fact, he's more than an archaeologist. He's a rabbi and an academic and an archaeologist. And he worked around the 1940s, 1950s. He spent a lot of time in the land of Israel. And he did a lot of archaeology. And he even did archaeology as it relates to the Bible. He wrote a book called The Rivers in the Desert, A History of the Negev. And he made this quote. He wrote on page 136, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. And that's quite a, a claim to make, isn't it? For someone, an archaeologist, to spend his entire life studying archaeology to make the claim, never ever has an archaeological dig controverted a biblical reference. He goes on that scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, Proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to an amazing to amazing discoveries. And what he's saying there is that some archaeologists actually start Bible in hand and 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 explore archaeology via that way, rather than starting with archaeology and arriving at the Bible. He said quite often that's led to some amazing discoveries if you start Bible in hand. So that was made I don't have the date on that, but I think it's about nineteen 69 or thereabouts. What's interesting is that in 2019, this quote was picked up in a magazine. They wrote an article in this magazine called Biblical Archaeology's Top 10 Discoveries of 2019. And the point of the article is that, that the point of Nelson Gluek's declaration, it still stands. The article says, archaeologists and Bible scholars resist the idea the archaeology proves the Bible. But many of the mainstream media stories announcing these discoveries acknowledge that the Bible was right all along, or right, after all, in these instances. Archaeologist Nelson Gluek's declaration that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference still stands. 2019. Think what you may about archaeology. It's an interesting statement to make, isn't it? That given all the digs in the land and given all the historical events recorded in the Bible in that land, never once, from multiple points of view, has archaeology proved 
the Bible to be untrue. I want to spend a few moments just going through a few points where as advanced as man's science is, it's actually always behind the wisdom of God. The first one I want to have a look at is a, a community of people that do not get a lot of love from the scientific community, probably for good reason. The Flat Earth Society don't believe that the world is spherical. They believe that the world is flat. Out of interest, I did some research on the Flat Earth Society because I can't comprehend that people honestly believe that the world is flat, given that we've been into space and can see that it's actually spherical. And interestingly enough, the data suggests that about 50% of the society actually believe it is flat, and that 50% of the society just enjoy the academic argument arguing, knowing that it's actually incorrect. And it's quite a, a, an interesting um, point of view to go through the mathematical data of their theories to see that there is some relationship between their theories and reality and how you can argue the two sets of data by com and coming up with uh, two vastly different conclusions given the same data. And the, one of the first things that went through my mind was evolution, because they've done very similar on that, whether they acknowledge it or not. But that's not why I wanted to mention the Flat Earth Society, not because of the modern movement that we see today, but the Flat Earth, or belief in a Flat Earth, is actually an ancient belief. We, man has not always understood that the Earth is spherical for centuries and centuries. In fact, millennia, men have understood the Earth to be flat. The flat earth model is an archaic conception of earth's shape as a plane or disc. Many ancient cultures sub subscribed to a flat earth cosmography, including Greece until the classical period, so 300 years BC. The Bronze Age and the Iron Age civilizations of the Near East until the Hellenistic period, so not long before the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even India quite late, centuries after AD in China until the 17th century, believed in a flat earth. The earliest reliably documented mention of the spherical earth concept dates from around the 6th century BC, when it appeared in ancient Greek philosophy, but remained a matter of speculation until the 3rd century BC, when Hellenistic astronomy established the spherical shape of the earth as a physical given. So it wasn't that long ago, you know, 2,000 years ago, that we discovered that the Earth was actually round. And yet, long before the Greeks were on the planet, the Bible tells us that it is he, God, that sitteth upon the globe of the Earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as locusts. So 500 years between, before Greek philosophy, Isaiah wrote, as inspired by God, that in actual fact the earth was a globe. How did he know? He knew because he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. What wasn't so clear, even to Greek philosophers, was the relationship of the earth to other heavenly bodies. Early Christians, for example, believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything else revolved around the earth. 
It's an interesting piece of church history that Galileo was tried and convicted by the Catholic Church for proving that that theory was wrong, that the, the earth wasn't the centre of the universe. Different religions down through the ages have all had different theories on what holds the earth in place. One not so common one is the world turtle theory. It's also referred to as the divine turtle. It's appeared throughout numerous mythologies, Hindu, Chinese, the indigenous people of America. I chose it because of its absurdity, but it proves the point that man has no idea what holds these things together. What keeps the earth in place? Well, 4,000 years ago, God told Job what holds it in place. God stretched out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. God knew how gravity worked and held it all place because God was the creator of the heavens and the earth. And during the creation period, he put the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars in their place and kept them there via the physical laws that they operate to this day. God is the creator of all things. He informed us in his Bible, God exists and therefore the word of God is true and accurate. The last one that we'll deal with briefly is the water cycle. You're all very familiar with the concept today. The water cycle is taught in our schools. And even if you can't remember where you learned of the water cycle, we all understand that clouds rain water down on this earth. And that that water returns to the low-lying places on the planet via rivers or underground streams. And that that water makes its way out into the ocean. That via evaporation, the water goes up into the clouds. That the clouds rain down on the earth again and that cycle continues in perpetuity. 500 years ago, people didn't understand that. And if we'd never heard that before, that's, it's not a difficult concept to, to realize why they didn't understand that. It's not obvious that the rain in the clouds can support all the water in the rivers. And people couldn't understand how the rivers were sustained by rain only. They thought there must have been another mechanism. Some believed that water was pushed up somehow, up through the middle of the mountains and then ran down the rivers. The complex nature of how water is supported in clouds, despite being heavier than air, is clearly implied when God said to Job, Job, do you know how the clouds are balanced? And of course he didn't. Nor did any other man on the earth for thousands and thousands of years, because it's not obvious. But God knew, because he is the creator. There are a few references in the scripture to the water cycle, but here's one from Ecclesiastes. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north, it whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits, and around and around it goes. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And God the Creator explains to us the water cycle that we all know and accept today. You know, centuries after the book of Ecclesiastes was written, Aristotle demonstrated only a vague understanding of that process. He knew that rain came from clouds, but he incorrectly thought that 
water and air could turn into or air could turn into water and vice versa. It's only recently been learned that most clouds are formed by evaporation over the ocean. The first published thinker to assert that rainfall alone was sufficient for the maintenance of, ris of rivers was Bernard Palissy in 1580. He's often, dis often credited as the discoverer of the modern theory of the water cycle. Palissy's theories were not tested scientifically until 1674 in a study commonly attributed to Pierre Perrault. Even then, these beliefs were not accepted in mainstream science until the early 19th century. But God knew, did he not, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so there is just a few areas of science where the Bible is, is quite clearly thousands of years ahead of the sciences of man. The question we have tonight is, is well, we can start with, God. does God exist? Is the Bible, or proof that the Bible is the word of God? It's not a new question. The question about the existence of God or the power of alternative gods has been on the earth ever since man has been. It's a question that God has had to answer himself as people presented idols to him, and he had to make his case that he was the only true God. And he told us how he did that in the Bible. He said, to prove that I am God, I'll give you prophecies, and if they come to pass, I am God. If you take your idols, get them to give you prophecies. If they come to pass, then they are God. If you like, prophecy is God's litmus test to divinity. He tells us in Isaiah 46, I am God, there's none else. I am God and there is none like me. So the context of this is proving that he is the one and only true God. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In other words, my prophecies will come to pass. That's how you determine that I am the only true God. And so in Isaiah 41, let those idols come and tell us all things that are to come. Tell us the former things, what they were, and we will set our heart upon them and shall know the latter end of them. And tell us the things that are to come. Show us the things that are to come hereafter and we shall know that ye are gods. So that's the litmus test that God has put forward to us. Use prophecy to understand whether I'm God. And the same applies to the Bible. If the Bible is the word of God, the prophecies that he's given to us in his word, if they come to pass, God exists and the Bible is his sure word. And so we're going to consider probably the most remarkable prophecy that God has given unto us and that, occurred, and that is um, on the subject of his people Israel. It's the one prophecy worth noting for the following reason that God has given it to us and specifically stated that the prophecies concerning Israel are to be a witness to his existence. God tells us that. He says, I want you to look at Israel and use it as a witness of my existence in Isaiah 43. O Israel, fear not. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant to whom I have chosen, my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no saviour. 
Therefore ye are my witness, saith the Lord, that I am God. And so he's given us prophecies about Israel for this very purpose, to determine whether or not he is God and whether this is actually the word of God. And so as a very brief background to the nation of Israel, God chose the nation of Israel and gave them promises and curses based on how they uh, kept his commandments or not. In Deuteronomy 28, there's a whole list of blessings and there's a whole list of cursings. And here is a very um, short list of the curses. And I just want you to note as the very last curse there, if the nation of Israel were to disobey the commandments of God, they would be scattered among the nations. They would be scattered from the land in which they were dwelling and they would be scattered amongst the nations from there. And that comes from Deuteronomy 28 and verse 64. And in more detail, here's those verses. And the Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods, which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, and a failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and shalt have none assurance of thy life. That was the promise, or the curse, or the prophecy, if you like, concerning the nation of Israel, should they disobey God. And they disobeyed God. And so in the course of time, they actually were scattered. They were scattered for the last time in AD 70, when the Romans occupied the territory in AD 70. And we have the, the historical narrative of what happened on that occasion. We read that while approximately 40,000 Jews lived in Rome itself in the beginning of the first century, those who remained in the Jewish homeland in the Roman province of Judea were severely oppressed at the same time. Rome heavily taxed the local Jewish residents and a growing anti-Jewish religious sentiment developed. This oppression of the Judean Jews culminated in a Jewish revolt against Rome in 66 AD. The Roman retaliation was swift and overwhelming. The Jewish revolt called the Great Revolt was defeated. The Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 and the Jews were scattered throughout the then known world. It's a well known part of documented history that the Jews have been in dispersion up for, for the following 1900 years, more or less. They've been called the wandering Jew and their hearts did fail for them due to the persecution that they faced in the many nations and countries in which they found themselves. And they were in that state for many hundreds of years. Fortunately, God did not leave them there. And we have the prophecies of the scripture that although God was going to scatter the Jews, he was going to gather them once again. And it's the gathering of the nation of Israel back to their homeland that is the subject of the witness of God in the, in the Israeli people. We read in Jeremiah 20, uh, 33 and verse 25, Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, 
so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. And so God's promise was clear. As long as night followed day and that cycle continued, God would gather the Jews again to their homeland. He gets very specific in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We won't read through all that, but God promises that he's going to gather the Jews from the nation. But specifically down the bottom, the green bit, he says that the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed. And that's very specific, isn't it? That's the land of Israel, the land that their fathers possessed, or as it was known when they returned to the land, it was the land of Palestine. And we sometimes skip over this in fairly quickly, in a fairly blasé manner because it's a matter of history. They've been in the land now for over 70 years. But the regathering of the Jews was nothing short of miraculous. To have a people in dispersion for 1900 years, to retain their national identity, and to return to the nation or the land of Israel is nothing short of miraculous. We don't speak about it often, but it was not a given that the land of Israel was going to be their destination should they be gathered. In actual fact, there were many points or places that were discussed and disbanded as time went on. In fact, here's a few of them. And I didn't realise how much Australia featured in those suggestions. After a wave of pogroms in Russia, Joseph Chamberlain offered Theodore Herzl the establishment of a Jewish state in Uganda, East Africa. In 1903, Herzl presented the British Uganda program at the 6th Zionist Congress in Basel, and so they could have ended up in East Africa. But it wasn't to be, because that was not what God prophesied. In the land that thy fathers possessed, that's where I will return you, said God. Russia, Far East, was an option that was discussed in 1934. The third point, in the late 1930s, the British Zionist League considered a number of other places where a Jewish homeland could be established. The Kimberley region in Australia was considered until the Curtin government squashed it. Tasmania, with the support of the then Premier of Tasmania, Robert Cosgrove, Critchley Parker proposed a Jewish settlement at Port Davy in southwest Tasmania, but he died in 1942. And we can see how the events of the world put a stop to each of the suggestions that the return of the homeland or the return of the Jews to a homeland was any other place than where God had predicted. The homeland of the Jews where your fathers possessed, the land of Israel. And so it was reported in the Palestine Post on Sunday, May the 14th, 1948, that the first independent Jewish state in 19 centuries was born in Tel Aviv as the British mandate over Palestine came to an end at midnight on Friday. And so we have, ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the word of prophecy, the very thing that God holds up as a flag to his own existence, and his, his own sovereignty of the events on this earth, came to pass nearly 1900 years after they were dispersed and some 3,000 years after it was prophesied that that would be the case. Certainly God does exist. <clears throat> Certainly that the Bible is the most sure word of prophecy, the word of God. 
In wrapping up our, our lecture tonight, I do want to consider the few verses that our chairman introduced for us uh, before I started speaking from Isaiah chapter 40. And it sets up a contrast between the word of God and us, man. And it makes a statement about the word of God. It says that the word of God shall stand forever. God does exist. The word of God is exactly that, and it is the most sure word of God. It will stand forever. And he makes the contrast between the word of God and man. Because we're like the flower of the field, he tells us. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Mankind is put on this earth for a short period of time, sometimes only 70 years before we return to the dust of the ground from whence we came. If we're lucky, we have our name put on a statute. Most of the time we're never heard from again, but the word of God stands forever. And while that identifies the problem that we face, it also identifies the solution. Because while we are on the short on this earth for a short period of time, if we wish to overcome that problem, we must absorb ourselves with the word of God. And if the word of God stands forever, and we are filled with the word of God, then we too will stand forever. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ told a parable to that effect where he likened people to growing plants. And he likened their survival to how much of the water of the word of God they actually absorbed. In Matthew chapter 13, it's the parable of the sower. And talking about these people and the word of God, he said, when the sun was up, they were scorched. They had no root. They withered away. People who did not absorb the word of God could not stand forever. They could not face the trials of life. It's the teaching of the New Testament, how we can fill ourselves with the word of God, the water of the word. The New Testament teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ was the word of God embodied in flesh. Everything he did, everything he thought, everything he said was a perfect emulation of the principles of the word of God. If you like, he was the word made flesh, says the Bible. And if we want to fill ourselves, our lives, with the word of God, we need to emulate him, try to be like him, and try to do what he did and think the way he thought. In John chapter 1, it says, The word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul tells us, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That way we can be filled with the word of God, that we too might stand forever. The word of God is just that. It is God's word to us. And it was God's intention that we should spend time studying the word of God. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, he says that we can't please God without faith. And if you want faith, you have to read his word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it was his intention that we study his word. He also wrote in Acts 17, he commended those that studied the word of God in Acts 17 verse 11, where he wrote that these people were more noble than those in Thessalonica, because they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily, trying to determine if the things written in them were so or not. And so a study or a search of God's word pleases God. That was his intention. Second Timothy 2 and verse 15. 
Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show thyself approved of God. God has given us to us his Bible, which is his word, that we might study it and show ourselves approved. That was his intention. And so, ladies and gentlemen, in this word of, word of God, he has given unto us a hope for the age to come. It's a hope that we can take on board by studying God's scriptures, learning about God, learning about his Son, and living according to the commandments that we might take on that hope by being baptised into the all-saving name of our Lord Jesus Christ and living a life looking forward to his coming kingdom. So thank you for your time this evening.